And uh, yeah, just a little by introduction, if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to get started. Um, Open them to the Gospel of John. Uh, As mentioned in our e-newsletter this week, we are in the beginning of the Gospel of John. We'll be looking at the first 18 verses. I will read them in just a second, but a little bit just by introduction. Uh, We as the Davies family, we had an interesting event happen this week. Never, I don't think we've ever done this before. It was pretty awesome. Uh, We had early Christmas. Uh, So on Thursday, our son and daughter-in-law and their two kids, uh, Andrew and Davina and Elliot and Sloan, came from Coquitlam to our place, and Matt and Nana and the girls, they came over. And, you know, because, like, what happens is when your kids get married to other people, right, they have families too, right? So there's Christmases where you alternate, right? Some Christmases, they're in Squamish. And then other Christmases, they're in Springfield, Missouri, or on Pender Island, in the case of Drew and Davina, or whatever it might be. So Matt and Anna are going to Springfield this year, so we wanted all to be together, and we did, and we had, we had Christmas on Thursday. You know, this is not typically my thing, right? Like, I'm like, no, 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 wait a second, it's December 25th, I'm not ready for this. I actually said to Janice, I said, do I have to have your presents for this? What? She goes, no, that's for the 25th. Okay, so it's for the kids, right? So we did it, and, and I got to tell you, I, just, I tell you that because it was, it was actually awesome. I mean, it was turkey, <laughs> like, that's awesome. We had everything, and, uh, but here's the thing. I, I, I kind of felt initially that it would, it would be a little bit like, you know, spoiling the 25th, you know what I'm saying? Like it'd be whatever. Um, I feel actually the opposite has happened. I, I think it actually, um, it, it was like a preparation. It was, it, was like, it was like Advent in the sense that now, now I'm looking forward to the 24th and 25th actually even more. And that's because I'm insisting that there be another turkey. Probably not going to happen, but I'm not in charge of those things. So I, I, I tell you that because um, I feel that is a, a remarkable um, way for me anyway, the, the, what I've seen uh, of, of the, the idea of Advent. I don't know if many of you are reading an Advent devotional. Um, we, uh, every year, Janice finds a really good one. We found another one this year by Paul David Tripp. It's a fantastic devotional. Um, Readings from December 1st all the way through until December 31st. It's an Advent devotional. It's an awesome thing to do. And, and every Christmas, it just prepares our hearts. Because here's the thing. You guys all know. Like, there's a Christmas tree up front here at the ledge this morning. There's probably one in your house or going to be one in your house. And, and we just get caught up in all of the bells and the whistles. And it's fun. It's fun. It's good. But there's the birth of the Savior. The light of the world. And so preparation is really, really key. And it's wonderful, especially if you give yourself to it and invest in it. So I want to encourage you to do that. It's not too late, by the way. Today is only December 5th. You could start the devotional tomorrow uh, in your home or individually. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to read the full text today, the 18 verses of John chapter 1. And then I'm going to pray one more time, and then we will dive into our message for today. So read along with me, would you please? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He 
was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and of truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He comes after me, ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you once again for this great day. What an awesome day, Lord, to be able to come together as your church, uh, here in person and also online, and watching and, and worshiping together, listening to your word being read. We're thankful for that, Lord. Um, Lord, we will never let that stop. <laughs> so, Lord, I just thank you for this opportunity to look at this text today, to be together and, and to be considering John's writings, his words, your words, Holy Spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, I, I do ask you to help me, help us, to, to go deeper here, to, to really hear what you have to say to us today, especially at this time in our lives, in our world, and this Christmas. So I ask for your blessings now. Be watching over us. Encourage us. In Jesus' worthy name I pray. Amen. So I have a sermon title and three points for you today. Didn't have any of these last week. Well, I did have a sermon title. This week, your sermon title is The Light Has Come in our Advent series. Three things I hope we will see today. One, the Creator God comes. Secondly, the God who is light that we looked at last week comes. And finally, the Savior God comes. So last week, I pointed this out to you that there's two verses uh, in Scripture that I'm hoping that as we go through this series, and you'll especially see this in the last two messages next week and the 19th, Lord willing, uh, that we will get a better grasp of the meaning of them because they're both from the lips, the mouth of Jesus. And of course, he means what he says, and they're actually quite profound. And we hear them, and it's, it's just like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Okay, we know it. We give assent to it and, and write, but do we understand what it means? Do we really understand what it means? So the two verses, I want to put them on screen again for you this morning, um, will again, uh, near our conclusion today, come back to one of them again. But they are Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 12. He says this, he declares this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then, of course, you all remember in the Sermon on the Mount, later he spoke to his disciples, to all of his disciples, and he said this, you are the light of the world. Hold on. Jesus, we heard you. What did you say back there? You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill 
cannot be hidden. Like I said, next week and the week after, we will dive even more specifically into those verses. So let's start this morning by getting to know John a little bit more. I alluded to it a little bit to you last week that he's a very unique apostle. He really has a unique approach to what he's doing, and I think it's, it's important for us to learn more about him and, and understand that. And I said last week we would look more closely at him today, and so we're going to. He is a very unique theologian. Yes, he's an apostle. He's a disciple, a follower of Jesus, but he's, he's a theologian. I mean, I, I read commentaries. I read theologians all the time to prepare for sermons, but I mean, that's what this man is. Luke was a journalist, more or less. He was a doctor, and he collected facts and information from other people, and he just wanted to put together a really good report for his good friend Theophilus. John is different. He comes at this from a different perspective and a different heart. He's different in many ways, as, as we've said, from the other writers of the Gospels, whether it's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in several ways, whose narratives, as I said last week, uh, are more about the things that Jesus says and does. They're just chronicling, basically, the things that Jesus says and does, especially Luke. And we've seen that as we've been going through that gospel in the past. John, on the other hand, is focusing on who God is, what he's actually like in Christ Jesus, as he's revealed in the God-man, in Jesus Christ. And so it has a lot more to do. He's looking more at the heart and the character of our God. So his gospel is awesome. Oftentimes when people are, are investigating Christianity or even at our uh, December 24th um, Christmas Eve services, oftentimes we will have a little booklet that we'll give to people and it will have in it the gospel of John for people who don't know the Bible or don't really know the gospel. That's the one we give to people because it talks about the heart of God and really reveals God in a special way. As you read John's gospel and more so his letters, which were written late his life, you get a sense, although along with, this is interesting, you get a sense about him, which is interesting, but also you got to remember, remember Jesus gave him and his brother James a, a, a title, a name, remember what that was? It was the, the, the Sons of Thunder. So at one point in time, John and James were kind of like pretty brash, right? Like they get in your face, right? Like Jesus actually acknowledged that. And in, in, in The Chosen, in the series, we see that a little bit too. It's kind of interesting how that's presented. But something happens to John as he walks with Christ and after Christ has ascended and he goes on his work of ministry, his heart softens. Grace and faith does a real work in John. And you, you can really see it uh, as you read the Gospels. I always laugh whenever I get to... Uh, chapter 20 of his gospel, right? It's interesting. He, he's writing all these things about what's going on in Jesus' life and who he is and the character of God and so on and so forth. And then he gets to this point in John chapter 20, verse 2, where he goes, and he's talking about Peter or whatever. He always talks about Peter first. Then he says, and then there's the one whom Jesus loved. <laughs> he's talking about himself, right? In, in chapter 13, when they're sitting at a meal, right? And before Jesus washes their feet, he says the same thing. I, I'm the one leaning against his shoulder, who, who he loves, so, okay, like, it's a bit weird when you think about it, but he, he's declaring to us that, in his mind anyway, he, he has a very intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. I mean, that's the way I would take it, but it's still funny. The one Jesus loved. I love that. So we've discussed a few key differences between his Gospels and the other three. However, there is also a significant difference in his writing style and his theological fo focus. You get the sense reading 
John, or even better, hearing him read, like I, I was trying to read it for you this morning, just to hear it different, right? When you hear him read, it sounds different. There's a different feel to it. and There's more of a poetic, um, compassionate tone in his choice of language. And, and people, experts again say, if, if you read his Greek, it's, again, the, the structure of it is different than the other writers of the Gospels. I've heard some funny comparisons, people trying to make it like, okay, what's the difference between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and, and, um, and John? Just like, like, what kind of comparison could you give that would give people some idea of this? And so I, I decided to come up with one, one of my own funnies, and it would be this. It would be a little bit like, uh, you know, the, the difference between the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, and, say, Led Zeppelin and Vivaldi. Okay, so that was probably inspired by me watching seven and a half hours of the Beatles get back in the last two weeks, but that's kind of a comparison. It's silly, but it's really that different, his approach to his communication style. So as we open up his gospel, we immediately learn two things that I think are also very significant differences between him and the other three writers. So first, whereas Matthew and Luke both retell specific details. We heard it in the readings this morning of the actual birth of baby Jesus, right? I mean, they, they give us details about the, the prophecies of angels coming to Zechariah and, and, and Elizabeth and Mary. We, we hear all these details from them. Mark actually skips right by it all. He just goes right to the baptism of Jesus. He's like, yeah, yeah, that, the birth story is awesome, but I want to I get to this. And so, yeah, he's very different in the sense that they do all those things. They give us all these details about, you know, Bethlehem, Mary and Joseph, the the inn, there's no room for them. All these details are given to us by Matthew and Luke. John, not so much. Not so much at all, actually. You just heard the beginning and the reading of his gospel, and that's basically it. There are some little hints in there that we'll see, but it's actually very interesting. John actually does start the Christmas story, the birth story, but he decides to start it in heaven. He decides to start the Christmas story before the foundation of the very world. But he also gives us a few hints, as as you maybe have picked up as I read the text for you. In verse 9, he gives us a few hints about the actual birth, the incarnation, where he says in verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So just, just before, referring to the light, but it, 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 he's coming. And of course, the, the most famous verse probably in that whole passage, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, there it is. There's the birth of Jesus. But for John, that's it. That's basically it. Those are the details that he gives us. He's focused, I want to suggest to you, on something from his perspective that's more important. Or, or shall I say, when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to salvation, most critical. And so let's look at our point number one today, the creator God comes. And we'll put the first three verses uh, on screen, as well as verse 14, as I read them one more time. John records, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then verse 14, and this word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory 
as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So in these first three verses in John, uh, verses 1 through 3, we, we see what is often referred to as the prologos. Um, we get the word prologue from it, right? It's, it's the, the prologos of all of creation, but specifically of John's gospel and story that he takes it into. What, it's, it's one of the most theologically rich and profound three verses you will find about who Jesus is. We, we could, and people have. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think, spent 12 weeks <laughs> in sermons in those first three verses. And you could, because there's so much deep theological information there that would be a blessing to us. So what we find out about Jesus in these first three verses is his relationship to the Godhead. Uh, we learn about that, and to us as well, of course. But there's even more. You do notice the similarity in those first three words, right? To another passage of Scripture that we looked at last week, right? In the beginning. What's interesting is this in the beginning is before the in the beginning in Genesis 1. It's the in the beginning. Understand that it's before all that is what we're reading here, which is really remarkable. So, before the creation of the world, John reveals to us that the word was. And again, we can put those verses, verses 1 and 2, back on screen for you. It it tells us who the word was. In other words, that this, this word, we know, it's Jesus, right? we know that, was before the foundation of the world. And so again, it's telling us about the eternal character of God and Jesus himself. He existed before the foundation of the world and he was with God. So when people build Trinitarian theology, um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and, and hear me, like in the Old Testament, that, that, that was like, not understood. The people of Israel, the Jewish people, they, they didn't, that, that wasn't something understood. In fact, in the days of Jesus and the apostles, this kind of teaching is what many Jewish scholars and people would go, we don't know about that. But it becomes revealed and we begin to understand that there is this thing called a Godhead. And so more we see this, the word was and is God. It's established. And then in verse 14, we're told this word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John also wants us to know that he and many others have seen, have seen with their own eyes this word, this God, and they've seen his glory face to face. And they know full well who he is. Full well who he is. And this is what inspires John to write. He can't help himself. He writes the gospel first, and then many years later, uh, 1 John, 2nd and 3rd John, when he's like 90 years old, before he dies. I mean, they tried to kill him, but he actually dies of natural causes. So let's back up a bit here and fill it in. I know many of you know this, but some of us will be still putting some of these pieces together, so it's important, I think, as part of the Christmas story that we do that. And it's a good reminder, I hope, for those of us who know our theology, who know our John 1, 1 to 3. So the Greek word for the word, for word, is the word logos, right? Um, most of us know that. My Bible software that I have at home with all of my commentaries and everything on it is called logos. It's, it's the word. It, it literally means that. 
And that's the word in the Greek. And of course, we get the word logic from that. And it's not a bad derivative, but it's not really necessarily the definition. In classic Greek, some of the definitions you would have for the word logos would be, yes, word. Depending on context, that's exactly what it would mean. Word, as in, you know, letters that make a word or a word that is, that's the point. Also, it can mean speech, speaking, and reasoning. It can mean that as well, and it does in various points in the scripture, where logos is the word that's used when it talks about reasoning. So you will notice in your translation that it is capitalized, which of course is telling us that it's referring to a person, it's a personal pronoun, and therefore we know that it is Jesus, this word who became flesh. So for John to use this word is important. Again, he, he's an evangelist, as we're going to see later. Um, and and he, he wants to witness, too. He's writing in Greek. He spoke Greek. Um, he wants to reach the Greek. And, and, and in that culture, in that day, especially among the philosophers, logos was a big word. It was about philosophy to them. It was about life. It was about understanding reality and life. And so John is opening this up with a lot of really important things about who Jesus is, what the Godhead looks like. But he's also this, he's, he's thinking ahead. He, he's thinking of his audience. He's actually trying to contextualize his message. So first, Jesus is God in the exact same way. He lets us know that the Father and the Spirit are God. He was with them before the foundation of the world. And then secondly, and wonderfully, John shows us in verse 3 that he was, is, listen, the creator God. Now, John, I'm sure, writing in the power of the Holy Spirit knew this, but I'm also sure that during the period that he lived and walked with Jesus, he would have heard Jesus teaching about these things. He would have known his Old Testament pretty well. And he starts putting these things together. And what he's really revealing here to us is that he understands now Genesis 1-3 better than he ever did before. And you remember, we, had, we looked at that last week. And it says in John uh, 1-3, it's the first time that God, what? Speaks in the scripture. And he speaks something into creation, which happens throughout Genesis. And we read the words, God said, let there be light. And there was light. And so that was Jesus. John wants us to understand what he'd begun to understand, who spoke things into existence. And in this case, it was light. And that is why he concludes actually his prologue in verse 3 with the words, again on screen, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. That's, that's an all-encompassing, amazing statement. Imagine being the disciples starting to piece that together about who this man, this flesh man, this God-man really is. So then again in verse 14, this word who is God and creator who spoke everything into existence that is made became human. The people of Israel, the people have been praying for a long time for a Messiah, but, but to, to have a Messiah come in the flesh in this way, I, that's amazing. 
So that is the profound reality that John reveals to us in the opening of his gospel. That profound reality is that the creator God has come to us. That's something to ruminate on for some time, isn't it? The creator God. Look out there. Look at this, this beautiful cosmos and planet and everything that's there. Look at human beings. Look at the animal kingdom. Look at the things that grow and the things that swim. The one who created everything comes as one of us. This is the amazing thing. This is the beautiful picture. This is Christmas in a nutshell. How he came to a virgin as a baby in poverty, etc. It's all part of the Christmas story and it's awesome. What John gives us is also amazing. So it's easy for us, I think, just to give a big sigh and a warm, fuzzy feeling and go, that's awesome. God came and, you know, he, he, he came just like us, right? Um, but I have an interesting illustration that I hope might just maybe shed a little bit of light into the, the reality that, you know, that's just not the way it works generally in the world, you know, where people who are in certain positions, like they actually come to us. You know, sometimes we wish they would, but they don't because they're here and we're here, right? In the world and so forth. So in, in my business career, I, I had a very interesting uh, consulting phase in my business career where I consulted various businesses on their their overall business structure and how they were, yes, marketing and things like that. <clears throat> but one, one of the roles that I played was something called customer experience management. And so I, I had a client who had a chain of restaurants in the Vancouver area. And I proposed to them, that, hey, listen, what we should do. And I heard about this being done in the States. And so I thought, I'll try it. And, you know, what I should do is I should pose as a mystery shopper, right? And I should come to each one of your restaurants. They had like, I don't know, seven or eight different stores in the chain. And I said, I'll come and I'll, I'll just be like a regular, you know, person coming to eat and I'll just check it all out and then I'll give you a report. So it was awesome, right? So I show up and every one of the restaurants, they had a reception desk, you know, like at the front and, you know, where they would get you seated and stuff like that. And of course, you know, I, I would of course give that person sometimes a little bit of a hard time, like, oh, by the way, I want a window seat. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, and I, I don't want a booth. I want one with a, a chair and, and, and uh, yeah, no, and I'm in a bit of a hurry, so I don't really have a lot of time to wait. You know, real fun customer, right? It, it, it was interesting to see the responses, right? And then, of course, I'd get seated, and I would find a fork that had something on it that, hey, by the way, could you get me a new fork? And it was interesting. Yeah, just waitresses loved me. Not, not so much, really. And, uh, you know, the food was cold. I would find something. And sometimes I would, I would praise, too. I'd say, hey, this is really great. Thank you very much. Looking for a response. How did they respond, right? And things like that. And uh, it was, uh, trust me, I, didn't, I wasn't enjoying myself, okay? It was part of the job, but it was interesting. So what I would do at the end of it was interesting. I would write a report and give it to the management team, sometimes just the owners, but typically a management team. And in this case, it was. But what we would do, which was most important, is we would bring the staff in uh, to hear about the report, and then they would be introduced to me. <laughs> and some of the waitresses would go, oh, I remember him. Right? I remember that guy. And so you can imagine most of them were just, they were just expecting. First of all, there was this thinking, like you could tell they were kind of, they were not happy with the management at first. Why would you do this to us? You know, put us in this kind of, but here's the thing. We didn't, I didn't, 
ever spend time, I did with the management, but when we met with the staff, never talking about the things that didn't go well. Instead, we just talked about the things that were really, really good and praised people, and sometimes specifically by name and by location. And it, it just changed the whole mood, right? It was pretty awesome. And what I learned from that was, was I hope something that might apply here, uh, but it's a, I'm going to show you also it's not the perfect analogy. But what I learned is, is that um, in good companies, uh, people actually appreciate it when the people up here come to the floor, come to where they live and where they work, and care about them as much as they do the bottom line and the success of the business. Because you know what? It's dependent on them. <laughs> and so they actually appreciate that in the long run. So as I said, this analogy is, of course, not perfect, but it's also not at all like what Jesus does here, is it? It's very, very different. He's not coming to a place expecting to be served and to have the forks and the food perfectly hot and everything exactly the way it's supposed to be. He's not coming to that kind of place and expecting that kind of thing. He's coming to those people, that, the people whom he's given life to, a heartbeat, air, water, the planet. Those same people have rejected him and turned from him and have brought brokenness into his creation. He, he wasn't a mystery shopper <laughs> or in disguise either, was he? There, there, there's no disguising this. In fact, all through the Old Testament, it, it's prophesied who he is, how he's going to come, what he's going to be like. And of course, they're not picking up the signals at all. No, that's, in fact, that's not really what they want. They want the CEO guy, don't they? They want the guy who's going to come and he's going to put everything in order and pay us the best wages ever and, and everything's going to be perfect. And he's definitely going to you know, look after us and, and take care of those people who are oppressing us. It's not the way he came. It's not him at all. It's not the same story. So here in our text, for, in verses 6 to 8, we're told that the last prophet, John the Baptist, the forerunner was telling everyone that he is coming and that he's bringing the light. That's what John's doing. He's the last prophet since Malachi 400 years earlier had spoken. No, nothing from God for 400 years. John the Baptist is the last, but all of the prophets are going, look, he's coming. Expect it. This is what he's going to do when he comes. And this is what he's going to be like. And John says, he's bringing the light. <laughs> That's awesome. That's just really, really awesome. So he came, listen, he didn't come as part of some management team or some consultant either, did he? Right? He didn't come that way. Nothing like that at all. It's, it's funny, I, I read the Gospels and I read even the Epistles and I'm like, it, it's not too often that you find anyone in either the Gospels or in the Epistles asking Jesus, hey, by the way, how should I live my life? What, what do you think about what I'm doing? What do, you, what, is my, what, is, what do you think your will for my life is? Like, he tells people things, but nobody's actually asking these questions. So he's not coming as a management team or as a consultant is what I'm getting at. He came, listen, with a purpose in mind. And you know what it is. He came to die on the cross to take away the sins of the world. Your sins and my sins. That's why he came. He came to serve the least, the last, and the lost, which is who 
you and I are. And so that's the big deal of Christmas. That's our creator God who comes, and yet, sadly, even in that time and to this day, some will not believe. So then, listen, considering the fact that the prophets had spoken and pointed to his coming for thousands of years, John the Baptist declared he's coming, and here we see he was born and then begins his life of ministry, preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God that is now here in him, healing the sick, performing all kinds of miracles all over the place, one after the other, doing and saying things that only the Messiah of God could do or could say. And John tells us sadly in verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Why? Why is that? Well, the problem is that they had is exactly the same as the problem we have all had, can have, and that the world has. We are in darkness. We are in deep darkness. So that's point number one. The creator God comes in the flesh to be with us. Number two, the God who is light comes. Verse nine says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So at this point, John has moved. He's moved from the creator God who has come. He has moved from that point, the word, to the light. He's moved past that. So be sure you don't miss the key word here. The word that qualifies light, that expands on it, that amplifies it, in fact, and it is the word, gotta love it, true true light. Its meaning in the original language actually means, uh, again, various words could be used to apply to what we call true, which of course, along with truth in our culture today is like, well, what's that? But in the original languages, it implies genuineness, sincerity, or as pertaining to that which is the real deal. This is not a knockoff. It's not a carbon copy. It's the original. So it's the true light that has come into the world. So you might recall from last Sunday as we looked into the subject of light more deeply, like basically the, the, the underpinnings of what it is, both in the natural and the transcendent, we learned that it means two things at least when it comes to who God is. First, it means that God himself is the supreme intellect and mind in the cosmos. Like I said last week, not Google. He is the supreme mind and intellect in the cosmos. On every single subject, no matter what it is, he knows what the truth is. So the truth is out there. He possesses it. Only he does. And we can know it if we know him. So first, as I said, it means that, that, that he is omniscient, meaning he knows all things. Secondly, it refers to his absolute and his perfect purity and holiness. It elevates him to something that is far beyond us. One day he's going to perfect us, and we are going to be like him in that way. Amen? Oh, that's going to be a glorious day. That, again, is the story of Christmas. 
So he's beyond us. And also we learned that he is absolutely untouched by darkness. There's no darkness in him at all. 1 John 1, 5 tells us. So when it comes to Jesus, John tells us that true is not just the opposite of false. It's not just the opposite of false. It's again that he, Jesus, is God in the ultimate sense. He is the absolute truth. When he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, these are definite articles. There's no equal to him in these ways. Some of you are going, Glenn, you're preaching to the choir. Yes, I am. These are good reminders, important for us to understand. So when it comes to him, as I said, he is not just the opposite. God is the ultimate or absolute truth. That then is the light that comes into our broken and dark world when Jesus came. It's truth embodied in this God-man. And that is what the light is. And that is why when we read verse 11 about the people not receiving when he came was because they were in darkness. Later in John's gospel, he records Jesus saying the same thing. Look at this in John 3, 19 to 21. Jesus is reiterating this fact. He says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Oh, man. Have you ever gone back on your own sinful life and, and acknowledge the fact that sometimes even though you know the truth, you know the light is right here, and yet somehow you still prefer the darkness? Just don't want to give this up for this? That's what he's getting at. And then he goes on to say, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it will be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So friends, let me say this very clearly and boldly to you about this point about truth. Uh, People who think the enlightenment, you know, that, that, that category that we know about that, you know, was established for that point in time when we as humans finally began, you know, the the progressive work of throwing off the shackles, right, of mere myths and religion to, to what we could finally be truly enlightened, people who think that this enlightenment happened in the 17th and 18th centuries, they're, they're completely wrong. I know they believe that, and, and that's what you're going to study in university when it comes to philosophy and worldviews and culture, is that that's when the Enlightenment began. Seriously wrong. It actually began in the year 0 AD. Amen? That's when it began. What happened in the 1700s, 1800s, and to this day, is we're like, no, no, no. No, actually, we prefer the darkness to the light. The darkness of human wisdom. Versus the light of God. Really, what, we, what we're experiencing through the Enlightenment is just another dark age, isn't it? It's, it's another repeat of the dark ages. I hadn't really thought about that before until preparing this, this message, but like, I, I've studied philosophy. I've studied these things. Why? Because I'm a preacher. You, know, you need to understand like, how the culture has gotten to where we're at today, yada, yada, yada. 
and this enlightenment and you know modernism and all these are important things to understand but that's we're, we're not enlightened we're in darkness the true enlightenment began in the year 0 AD but here's the truth the truth is without Jesus the world's value systems will always be and will remain in darkness they just will and so some of us lament right we we look around in our world today and we're like oh man it's just like it's just broken and it's getting worse and, it, and so forth. And, and we should. We should be concerned. And so what are we going to do about it? Are we going to do acts of kindness and social justice and things like that? Sure. But what do they really need? They need the light. They need Jesus Christ. Starting to put those two verses together a little bit that Jesus quoted a little bit. Okay. And so people obviously at some point will, will and have through the whole enlightenment period begin to label biblical morality as intolerant and oppressive. People will take offense at the truth that Jesus is the only way to salvation. All this takes us back to John 3.20 again, where Jesus said, light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were and are evil. Calling good evil and evil good is a sure sign of spiritual wickedness and darkness at work, actually. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this age, who could that be? The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the good news of Christmas, of the Christmas story is, the God who is the true light has come. And he promises you and I this, John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. Here's my promise to you, believer, Christian. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You don't need to be surrounded by darkness. You don't need to walk in it. You can walk in the light every second of every day. Follow hard after Jesus Christ. Number three, the Savior God comes. There's one, uh, another perspective on the Apostle John that um, I actually alluded to it earlier, but hasn't been mentioned so far in our series, really, and that is that he, he is known as John the Evangelist. That's, that's interesting when you look into the history of that, but even amongst the Apostles, it, it would be pretty clear, I think, that most of them would say, well, Paul's definitely got that apostolic prophetic gifting. You know, he's kind of like, he just blunt, he just says it the way it is, right? Kind of like Jesus, part of Jesus, right? John, again, a little different. Everything in his gospel has been aimed at evangelism. He wants to reach the lost. He wants to encourage you and I to go and reach the lost. And if you're lost, he wants to encourage you to come to Christ as your Savior. So more than any of the other apostles, I would suggest, he has seen that the way and has shown that he is a true evangelist to us. 
and by today's words that are embodied really actually in the middle of the text. You may have seen it, but we just went right by it, but I'm going to highlight this as part of our conclusion today, and that is really in relation to the Savior God has come. Right in the midst of this story, this text that he's showing us, he, he, he presents the gospel. As an evangelist, in verses 12 and 13, he says this, after he talked about those who didn't believe, who who, who ignored Jesus, preferred the darkness, he then says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So as I said, in direct response to those whom he previously mentioned did not receive Jesus, he offers this counter, which is beautiful. He says, but, but, all who did receive him, who believed in his name. Now look at these words. Does it say, earned the right? No. No, and thankfully, that's not right. Not a chance. And that's really good news as well. No, it says that Jesus gives the right. It's a gift from Jesus. The right to become, look at this, children of God. It's critical. So let's pause here and just think about this. It's important. I'm sure many of you have heard various sayings that are out there in the world, in the cosmos, you know, and and sometimes in the church, you know, Bloggers, others will say things like this. And this is, here's one that's pretty famous. You know, like people will just say something like, you know, when, when you're struggling or whatever and you're, you're looking for some direction, people will just say, hey, just follow your heart. Right? Anybody ever said that, ever heard that? Just, just listen, follow. Who knows better than you, right? Just follow your heart. Now, I'm sure uh, as Christians, you know that the Bible teaches that that's just ridiculous, that, that you following your own heart, me following my heart, is absolutely wrong. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? And then, it's sad but funny. Um, and then Jesus turned up the heat on this fallacy. This is Jesus, by the way, saying this in Mark 7.21-23. For from within, out of... The heart of man, or woman, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. They defile a person. It's just the truth. It's just the truth. So don't follow your heart. That's that's a bad saying. Another untruth that you will often hear today, even among Christians, is this. Hey, listen, good news. We're all children of God. You may not know him yet, you know, but you're a children, child of God. It's just not true. It sounds good. I, I think we even want to believe it. But it's just not true. I think some of us, we, we, we do that out of a, a kindness that we, we kind of take that out of our understanding of the Imago Dei, that we're all created in the image of God. That's true. We are all created in the image of God. It's a very true statement. 
But the truth that John shows us today here, friends, is this. We are all God's creation, but we are not all God's children. So friends, let me speak very directly to those who are here or maybe watching online this morning who are now wondering, really, what does that all mean? What does that mean for me? Maybe for you sitting here watching online. I don't know. I hope and pray and trust that you all know Christ, placed your faith and trust in him. So what does that mean? Well, please hear this. You may not be a child of God at this very moment, but the message of Christmas is you can be today and then forever. Truly be a child of God. The word of God through John here today makes it very simple for you and I. He makes it very simple. Look at verse 12 again. It'll be on screen. It says that in response to Jesus' free gift and offering of his life for yours, you just need to receive him. We handed out presents to the kids on Thursday at our pre-Christmas. I don't remember picking up a gift and handing it to any one of our grandchildren and them going, no, thank you. It's like, yes, please. I will receive that. You just have to receive him as Lord and Savior, as creator God who has come, as the God who is light, who has come to give you his light. And secondly, you need to believe in his name. No other name, including your own, for your salvation. And he will give you, he will give you, if you do that, the right to be a child of God. And beyond that, to be a co-heir with him. This is Christmas. And so I want to encourage all of us today to receive that free gift, if we haven't already. And for those of us who have, during this Advent season, to appreciate it one more time, what God did at the first Christmas and continues to do every Christmas for the rest of your life. It's an amazing gift. I hope you appreciate it. Pray with me, would you?